Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you are listening to this podcast right now. Thank you so, so much for helping us with that. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We have merch, our niche legend dad hat, and I think multiple colors at this point at poppantheonpod.com and our merch store and of course we have our patreon channel pop pantheon all access where we give at least three bonus episodes of the show per month and that is available at patreon.com slash pop pantheon also gorgeous gorgeous my queer pop party you know it you love it has its next installment in los angeles on august 25th the link to buy tickets to that will be in the show notes of this episode really look forward to seeing everybody there my favorite night of every month pretty much and that's about it on the housekeeping front from me. This week's episode is the second installment of our Gwen Stefani series. Last week, we covered No Doubt, her band from the late 80s through the present day, but really their run of canonical hits in the mid-90s through the early 2000s. And today, we're picking up after their fifth studio album, Rocksteady, and into Gwen's solo career, which peaked in the mid-2000s. This was such a great episode to tape. Obviously, Gwen's solo music had a huge impact on me as a music listener, as a high school student who was of prime age to consume her at the peak of her pop powers. There's so much interesting controversy here. There's a lot of great music. So I really hope you enjoy Pop Pantheon, Gwen Stefani. If I were to name the top 10 albums that have shaped how I think about pop music, Gwen Stefani's certifiably bonkers, extraordinarily controversial, and perhaps most importantly, hit-stacked solo debut, Love Angel Music Baby, would most certainly be on that list. Looking back on it is like an unhinged time capsule. A gleefully polyglot musical aesthetic that somehow both perfectly enshrines the mid-aughts moment in which it dropped, and yet also works as a well-studied celebration of 1980s dance pop. A high-concept visual and fashion explosion, but also one that's marred by one of the most vile expressions of cultural appropriation in pop history. And a pop star at its center who found the rare and, to my mind, most important sweet spot someone in her profession can, between idiosyncrasy and mass appeal. In all of its glory, indelible smashes, and equally indelible ick, Love Angel Music Baby does everything I think a pop album should do. Make us dance, make us feel stuff, push the limits of good taste, and provide endless fodder for debate that rages on some 20 years later. When it dropped, though, that Gwen could make such a lasting impact on her own outside of her successful band, No Doubt, was no guarantee. Gwen Stefani's transition out of No Doubt and into Bonafide Solo Supernova began in earnest with a pair of collabs, starting with Southside, the seventh single off Moby's critically acclaimed 1999 album Play, and most critically, in 2001 when she teamed up with Rough Riders rapper Eve for the slinky hip-hop banger Let Me Blow Your Mind. Featuring production by Dr. Dre and Scott Storch, the song quickly became Eve's highest charting single on the Hot 100, reaching number two and snagging Eve and Gwen a Grammy. Most importantly though, the song proved that Gwen had major commercial purchase out side of the confines of her band, and that her Cupid doll voice, attitude, and cool factor could work exceedingly well in a genre that was quite different from the ska pop punk numbers she'd initially become famous for. After the success of both collabs, Gwen toyed with the idea of creating music on her own, and Interscope boss Jimmy Iovine convinced her to embark on a full solo project. 
Drawing inspiration from the big dance pop acts of the 1980s like Club Nouveau, Madonna, New Order, Lisa Lisa, and Prince, she headed into the studio with a panoply of the biggest pop, R&B, and hip-hop producers of the preceding 20 years. From Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis to the Neptunes, Linda Perry, Dr. Dre, Dallas Austin, and Andre 3000, as well as her bandmate and ex-boyfriend, No Doubt's Tony Canal. Though No Doubt had engaged in pop sounds, Gwen's first solo project, 2004's Love Angel Music Baby, was capital P pop that culled aesthetics from the 50s, the 80s, and hip-hop and R&B of that moment. It also dabbled in slamming dance pop, experimental electronic music, soaring electro ballads, reggae and dancehall, and seemingly pretty much anything else that caught Gwen's ear. The album's brilliant lead single, the charging Linda Perry penned four on the floor slammer What You Waiting For, served as a mission statement for the album, introducing a number of its key themes. Genre omnivorous songs made for shaking your ass, a celebration of material and sonic excess, Harajuku, a district in Tokyo known for its subcultures and street style, and lyrics that tread the line between irony and sincerity, and could serve as meta-commentary for Gwen's transition from rock front person to solo pop star. What You're Waiting For provided a modest start for Gwen's solo ambitions, missing the top 40 in the US but going top 10 around the world. The next two singles, though, helped turn the album into one of the mid-2000s biggest blockbusters. For her second single, Gwen reteamed with Eve and Dre for a goofy fiddler on the roof by way of Kingston, Jamaica dancehall banger Rich Girls, which reached the top 10 on the Hot 100. Lamb's signature song and biggest calling card, though, was undoubtedly the Neptunes-produced marching band stomper kiss-off anthem Hollaback Girl. The song broke the record for the most US radio plays in a single week, was the first single ever to sell a million downloads, was certified five times platinum, spent four consecutive weeks at number one, and of course taught the world how to spell the word bananas. Hollaback Girl also helped propel Love Angel Music Baby to sell eight million copies worldwide. On the back of this success, though, was a ton of controversy that's increasingly come to tarnish this album's legacy. In addition to calling out Harajuku on multiple tracks, Gwen hired an entourage of four Japanese women, her, quote, Harajuku girls, who were styled to look identical to one another and serve as completely silent characters in music videos, performances, and press appearances. Gwen actively referred to these women as, quote, a figment of my imagination. This act of cultural caricaturing was criticized at the time, most famously in an op-ed by the comedian Margaret Cho. But as our society has become more conscious of cultural appropriation, Gwen's flagrant use of these women as props, as well as Lamb playing fast and loose with hip-hop aesthetics, Gwen donning Chola-inspired looks in one of the album's music videos, and other pretty shameless borrowing has become one of the record's most enduring narratives. Gwen had initially intended to return to the studio with no doubt following Love Angel Music Baby, but after that album's commercial success, she opted to record new solo material instead. In 2006, she returned with The Sweet Escape. It's Neptune's-produced lead single, Wind It Up, a genuinely berserk song that somehow reimagines Holla Batgirl through the lens of a yodeling interpolation of The Sound of Music's The Lonely Goat Herd, was panned by critics but became a top 10 hit. Its follow-up, the electro doo-wop title track featuring Akon, was another smash for Gwen, landing at number two on the Hot 100 and earning quadruple platinum certification. Sweet. 
The Sweet Escape was a modest hit, selling about half of what Lamb had a couple years earlier. It also effectively became the end of Gwen's imperial phase, her last solo album for a decade. In the aughts, Gwen launched the successful fashion line Lamb, and after a brief return to No Doubt, she also joined the reality singing competition The Voice as a judge in 2014, appearing on over 100 episodes of the show and meeting her now-husband, country star Blake Shelton. She returned with her third studio album, 2016's This Is What The Truth Feels Like, which debuted at number one on the Billboard 200, but quickly fell off the chart. As a solo act, Gwen has won one Grammy, four VMAs, one American Music Award, one Brit Award, two Billboard Music Awards, a People Magazine Style Icon Award, and a Radio Disney Music Hero Award. Gwen has two platinum albums, seven platinum singles, four top 10 hits, and one number one single. Here with me to unpack all that needs to be unpacked about the wild ride that is Gwen Stefani's solo career is editor at NPR Music, Hazel Sills. All right, I'm here with editor at NPR Music and my dear friend, Hazel Sills. Hazel, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this episode. I think I've tweeted this out a couple of times. I find Gwen Stefani's personal and professional career trajectory to be one of the most confounding (laughs) in my pop (laughs) lifetime. Because just to quickly lay my cards on the table, and then I want to get a little read of the room of where you are on all of this. And I think I have a sense because you wrote an incredible retrospective review of Love Angel Music Baby on its 10th anniversary, which is now almost 10 years ago, if you can believe that. Oh my God. Advice, but I think it held up amazingly. I will be referencing it throughout the combo. But I thought Gwen Stefani was one of the coolest pop stars of my childhood. I thought she was this amalgamation of edge and also mainstream instincts that I think kind of formed a lot of what my taste in pop music is to this day. I always found her to be the perfect in my head at that time. And maybe I don't feel this way so much looking back at it, but sort of the perfect combination of someone that felt like they pushed against the cookie cuttery Britney J-Lo kind of pop element of the moment enough that it felt slightly outside of the norm. It felt quirky. I think we're going to talk about some of the ways that I feel like she helped set up the sort of Gaga era of pop stardom in some ways. But to watch her fall from grace away from all of those things over the last kind of 15 years, to be honest with you, used to seem, before I did this deep dive to prepare for this episode, like one of the greatest mysteries in pop history. The only parallel I can really think of is Justin Timberlake, like another artist that Mm. same era who seemed cool, edgy, was making some of the most interesting mainstream pop music of the moment and now seems like a fucking goober and a half. (laughs) I kind of feel like Gwen has had an equally weird trajectory in my own mind But now going back through the music, I actually feel like there was a lot of clues to the sort of weirdly conservative sort of retrograde trad wife that we see these days. Gwen Stefani has kind of always been in the mix in contrast with some of the images that she was putting out there that felt like they were pushing boundaries in some ways. It all kind of came together for me, I guess, is what I'm trying to convey to you Mm -hmm. over the course of researching for this episode. What's your personal experience with Gwen? Yeah, I also think that she was, for me as a child, not the antithesis, but I saw her as someone who was a cool pop star. Yeah, right. I have a very vivid memory of being in first or second grade and some girl bringing a copy of Rocksteady to class, which is hilarious because what was she doing with a CD at school? And <laughs> Just showing it off. Honestly, yeah. And she was like a cool girl and me being like, oh, this is cool girl music mm. and getting really into No Doubt then. And then, yeah, I think... Gwen Stefani, the way that she represented androgyny and femininity in a really interesting and compelling way in the early 2000s when it felt like 
to be a pop idol or to be a pop star, you could really only fit into one category felt sort of inspiring to me as a kid, as a youth. Watching her career just get farther and farther away from what made her interesting as an early performer and vocalist and songwriter has been very weird (laughs) to watch. But I agree with you that now as a host on The Voice and married to Blake Shelton and making very sort of boring pop music, it does sort of lead to this question of, well, how did she get here? But if you go back to those earlier records and you sort of read her press across her career, it's like... Oh, she was more basic than I feel like her edgy exterior. (laughs) (laughs) Right. We're not going to be covering this on this episode, but we will have talked about it already, which is the song Simple Kind of Life from No Doubt's second record is, I think, an air text on the reality of the Gwen Stefani duality Mm -hmm. in terms of her presentation and then in terms of a person that I think ultimately had a lot of reluctance about fame. I think also is kind of a labored artist, a theme that comes up over and over again through the No Doubt records and through her solo material is writing songs does not come easily to her. She's constantly talking about writer's block all the time. It just doesn't seem like making music is something that comes easily to her in some ways, which is so fascinating because I do think she ended up coming up with, I think because she had interesting ideas, some of the most interesting pop singles, both through No Doubt and through the solo work that we're going to talk about today that existed in that time period. And I really do think we're both incredibly influential on the next wave of pop stars, as I mentioned earlier, but also did a really delicate balancing act of her as this essentially glossy and big tent aiming pop star that anybody could really get into these songs. In terms of the ideas of what she was presenting and the camp factor and the eccentricities that she was able to put out there visually. And I think most importantly, which is something that I think we'll probably return to a lot, a real top, top, top tier star quality. Yeah. You can't take your eyes off of her. She is stunningly beautiful. She has incredible in this era, the personal style factor, not overhyped. No. It was really fun going back to that and remembering she looked incredible in all of these different ways. Of course, sometimes she was doing some <laughs> borrowing that might feel a little bit awkward <laughs> to us now. A little borrowing going on, maybe. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, the last thing I'll say before we get into the details of the situation is... And I think your retrospective review really captured this well. If I had to name the 10 most influential pop records on just my personal tastes, I would put Love Angel Music Baby in that grouping. I remember listening to that album and just thinking, this is the most fun and eccentric that mainstream pop can get while still sounding like radio fodder. Mm -hmm. I think that is maybe what my sweet spot is as a pop listener. And I think that record, maybe paired with some of those Khalees albums from the same time period, which I think there's a lot in common there, helped really formulate what I think a good pop album is or like what a pop star can do. And I think that that's maybe the best compliment I can pay Gwen Stefani looking back at all of this 20 years later. Yeah. I just want someone to complicate pop music and push the boundaries. And that's what that album did. It did. And it almost felt somewhat accidentally or something. (laughs) I don't know if she ever really like had a full grip on what she's doing. Anyway. Okay. So let's go back and think about the runway from No Doubt into the Gwen Stefani solo project. As we know, many artists begin in bands, attempt to go solo. Most do not pull that off successfully. This was definitely, I don't think looking back, like a guarantee that she was going to do this particularly well. In looking back at this, as you remember in the early 2000s, what do you think are some of the challenges 
that Gwen is facing in particular as she attempts to sort of make this pivot out of the band and into the solo career? Yeah, I think in terms of challenges, she kind of had two spheres of challenges. Mm -hmm. One, she has the challenge of being in a rock band or like a rock coded band and someone who's moving into the pop world. By the time she begins her solo career, No Doubt had already sort of been kind of like a pop group. Right. And she was sort of more than a front woman. Mm. She was sort of becoming an island onto herself. But I also think even if she was in a rock-coded band, the second sphere that she had to battle was just the age-old question of, can you make it as a solo artist when so much of your identity has been bound up in a group? You mentioned Justin Timberlake before. Justin Timberlake's Justified came out in 2002. Beyonce's Dangerously in Love came out in 2003. So she's sort of entering this moment where a lot of pop artists were breaking away from their groups or their bands to start a solo career. And I think Timberlake and Beyonce... They did it successfully because their debuts or the solo music that they were making, I think, really spoke to themselves as people. So much of Beyonce's debut was sort of about setting herself up as a sex symbol, talking about her personal life. Justin Timberlake, Cry Me River is about Britney Spears. I don't know. I think when you're an artist in a group and your identity is bound up in a group, this is how I think about Zayn in One Direction. Mm. You're like, well, is my star quality because I'm in this group and in relation to the other members, I'm a star or am I a star on my own? I think being able to step outside of your group and be like, this is who I am. This is my story. This is what I want to communicate in music is the special sauce or the key factor into making sure that you have a successful solo career. That to me is how people were doing it successfully before her. But I also think by the time her solo career begins, when people thought of No Doubt, they thought of Gwen. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like she was in a girl group. It wasn't just, oh, I'm going to make a pop album. It's like, I'm going to make a pop album that's going to further my identity and my story and what I want to express in music. Two things you're making me think about that I'm curious about your thoughts on. One, I think one thing that separates her solo pivot from... Timberlake and Beyonce Mm -hmm. is that their solo careers were vessels for them to become edgier. Yeah. Timberlake's leaving a very teen pop, semi-chaste, extremely youth-coded and Disney-fied, I guess in some ways, group and is utilizing the solo career to find edge and sex in his music. And in some ways, I think Beyonce is similar. I mean, I don't think Destiny Child was as teeny boppery chaste seeming as NSYNC was, but I feel like in the sort of girl group to solo act pivot, that's what the solo career function is and thread that you have to find a way to pull is. How do I retain the essence that attracted everybody to me while also growing up and being edgy and interesting as an adult pop figure? Gwen had a, like kind of the opposite problem going on, which is that No Doubt and being the front woman of No Doubt gave her edge and interest that those groups didn't have. In the context of No Doubt, I think Gwen had a really interesting position in the pop firmament in the sense that she was adjacent to pop and as No Doubt's discography unfurled and by the time we got to Rocksteady and there was a lot of heavy pop production going on on that. At that point, whether they were a rock band at all, I think is something that we could really have questions around. I mean, this was heavily produced music that included the Neptunes and Nellie Hooper and Mm -hmm. it was questionable. 
football. And as you said, by that point, I think the notion of them as a band where every member is as important as every other was a little bit of a folly because Gwen was such a superstar at that point. But I do think part of the trick here was that, and she alludes to this a lot in the ramp up to Love Angel Music Baby going like, I just wanted to make fun, silly dance pop. She kept kind of being like, I'm self-aware that I'm going to start making music that you might all think is stupider. And I think this could get into a whole other tangential conversation about what was seen as tasteful in the pre-poptimism era. Could we take somebody seriously who was a rock artist who then went to make dance pop music and how difficult that pivot was then even way more so than I think it would be now. Yeah. So I think that was one of the unique challenges. And now I have three. The second thing is that <laughs> I think maybe one of the assets that Gwen had going on is that I feel like No Doubt's position as a rock band was both so integral to creating her edgier image amongst other pop stars, but was also incredibly confining to her musically speaking. And I think that at the end of the day, Gwen was kind of fronting as a rock star. Yeah. I think that No Doubt post-Tragic Kingdom struggled to figure out how to operate as a rock band because Gwen was not really a rock artist at the end of the day. She was really more naturally, I think, what she became as a pop star. So mm -hmm. I think that was another sort of interesting facet. And then the other thing that I feel like is very intriguing is that Gwen Stefani was 35 years old at this moment. Yes. It's a really interesting dichotomy that runs through her entire career, but really crystallizes in this pop moment, which is that pop is a young person's game, obviously. There's very few moments where a pop star releases their debut solo album at 35 years old. I mean, that is just kind of unheard of. Not to mention that Gwen's entire just her entire sort of vibe and ethos and persona is about sort of teen brattiness. So it's this really interesting contrast where she's entering this sphere as a woman in her mid-30s who's made albums with no doubt about her desire to get married and settle down and have I mean, she's already been through a lot of like adult material trying to enter into a space that's dominated by people that are 15 years younger than her and also synthesize a idea of her in people's head as just a girl, as this kind of pouty, bratty, cupy doll whose teen angst is a huge part of her persona. So those are some of the things that I was tossing around in my head. Yeah, I think the age thing is pretty crucial to understanding what she was doing with her solo debut and Love Angel Music Baby. And yeah, Justin and Beyonce were trying to present a version of themselves that was like, I am an adult who has sex and relationships and I'm ready to enter this world as a fully formed person who's capable of making this adult music. And Gwen really felt like she was sort of peeling that back and proving that she could make young, fun, ditzy music. I mean, I read an interview with her in The Guardian where someone was talking with her about the producers that she was working with. And she was very upfront where she was like, I want to try all the different things. Right. I'm making a pop record at 35. Mm -hmm. This isn't going to last forever. Mm -hmm. Let's have some fun. Mm -hmm. And I think for as much as she was talking about, oh, I want to make a fun dance record, I think that is one of the most interesting aspects of Love, Angel Music Baby is What Are You Waiting For? is such an incredible song about not just the pressures of writer's block, but the pressures of aging as a pop mm -hmm. star in mm -hmm. the music industry and mm -hmm. all the Alice in Wonderland imagery. You talked about entering this world where everyone is 15 years younger than you. Mm -hmm. That sort of fish out of water aspect is all across the record. And yeah. even like a song like Cool, that is a beautiful and mature pop song totally. that only someone who has lived a storied life and has had adult relationships can write. Mm. But yeah, I was really trying to think of solid precedents for what she was doing. Rock stars have left their bands and, you know, the Beatles 
had solo careers. Right, Stevie yeah. Nicks had a solo career. Sure, sure. And then you have the pop artists who are leaving pop groups. It really is such a weird alchemy of things that are happening when she really decides to go solo that I could not pinpoint, oh, this person did this yeah. 10 years before. I agree with you. It is difficult, but I think that that loops back to my point earlier, which is that I think the front woman of No Doubt is a bigger pose for her ultimately than the solo career. Yeah. And it bears out in No Doubt's discography. That second album, Return of Saturn, when they attempted to make mature, sophisticated rock music, my thoughts on that music aside, which I think some of it's really good, mm-hmm. that wasn't what people wanted from her at the end of the day. That was probably the least successful up and through 2006 her second solo album thing that she had ever done and that was why Rocksteady I think re-centered everything and sort of sets up Love Angel Music Baby which is because she cannily realized people don't want me to be this self-serious sophisticated rock artist Like a lot of great pop stars, she's not really genre confined. It's not about that at the end of the day. And I think that's what Love Angel Music Baby is a great expression of as an artist going, what happens when I shake the shackles off of any sort of need to confine myself in genre and can just sort of let my star quality just sort of inhabit wherever I go? And I think it's one of those records that's one of the greatest expressions of when that can go right, I think, in a lot of ways. It is fascinating to see how her force of personality and just her strong aesthetic POV can sort of penetrate any of these different genres and still sound like Gwen Stefani songs, which is not true of other rock front people. No. That's something you can necessarily picture Shirley Manson doing or, I don't know, like other rock stars. That's what I think is sort of unique about Gwen is that maybe No Doubt was sort of confining to her and maybe Tragic Kingdom was a fluke. (laughs) I sometimes think about that. Let's talk about how she begins to set this up before she releases it. I just want to touch briefly on two songs that I feel like are pivotal to breaking Gwen Stefani out of the confines of rock star. Because I think the other thing that maybe we should lay out here as presidents is that this is still a time in pop music where there is a lot of boundaries between what type of artist you are. I think that's changed a lot now. You look at Olivia Rodrigo, for instance, she's a rock front woman and she's a pop star and she's whatever and we don't give a shit about those nuances. But in this moment, it was very important to No Doubt's cred that they didn't totally slot in with the Britney and Christina vibe. So when you think about both Let Me Blow Your Mind and Southside, how do those records either build on the persona that she had going on in No Doubt or sort of start to change how we think about Gwen on record and visually or however else we want to talk about these two songs in the early 2000s? It's interesting because I feel like each of those songs to me sort of showcase a different side to her. So like, let me blow your mind. I feel like that was her beginning to present herself as someone who can enter not just pop, but R&B and rap, which I feel like is very, very important to understanding the world of Love Angel Music Baby and sort of the rest of her pop solo career. she always sort of presented herself as an androgynous tomboy, wore baggy pants and whatever. And SoCal, which is another sort of hip-hop coded element to her music. Yeah, and her in that video with Eva was like, oh, you are saying to the world I'm a white girl who can hang in black music genres and black spaces. Right. She's got the giant gold nameplate necklaces Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and she's like, I'm a bad girl just like Eve. Even though we know that Gwen Stefani is not a bad girl (laughs) in any way, shape, or form. As you said before, trad wife. Trad wife. And I think it's funny because Eve has talked 
talked before about how she really liked No Doubt and wanted Gwen on that song. And her label was like, I don't think this is going to work. And it works beautifully Mm. because I think Gwen Stefani is an incredible vocalist. Yeah. Period. Mm -hmm. She can twist her voice in so many different ways and it just works. It works beautifully on a song like this. And I feel like Southside with Moby, that's such an interesting thing. That to me feels like more of an extension of what she was doing in No Doubt. I think of the video for that song and how she and Moby are playing off this idea that they were big celebrities. It's like a music video about making a music video. (laughs) Moby's wearing like gold (laughs) pants or something. And so I feel like Let Me Blow Your Mind was Gwen as pop girl being like, I can be a pop girl. I can be on a rap song. I can do this. I can enter this space. Whereas Southside with Moby felt like I'm still alternative, Mm. quote, alternative, quote, for some reason, it's just Southside to me doesn't feel like this radical departure for her. Mm. Just sort of speaks to the different genres that she could work in. But yeah, those two songs together, it was like, okay, who is Gwen Stefani as a vocalist when she's outside of No Doubt? Yeah. And clearly, I think through both of those songs, she's proved that she can do way more than just being the front woman of a ska, pop, rock band. Yeah, agree. And I also think it proves what we were talking about earlier, which is that at the end of the day, and maybe this is sort of integral to setting up the public's appetite for the solo career, people cared about her just as much, if not more, divorced from the group. It wasn't hard for people to accept her just kind of being Gwen Stefani on her own. Two things that I would add is just that at this moment in pop, hip hop is a really central force on pop radio and pop stars being able to have some fluency with hip hop felt really important in the early to mid 2000s. Again, you're bringing up artists like Jennifer Lopez, Ashanti is really huge at this moment. Beyonce is obviously having this huge moment. A lot of female artists are operating in this mold where it's like me and a rapper or I'm singing the hook on a rap song, whatever. So her proving those bona fides feels kind of important for her to have a crossover moment into pop in this particular moment, which again, I think is also interesting when we start to talk about What You Waiting For, which is one of the only songs on the record that really seems to dispense with hip hop aesthetics almost entirely, or one of a few songs that does that. But that feels important in that way. And I agree. I think that she does really work successfully on Let Me Blow Your Mind as this really swaggering kind of Iggy Azalea of her time. (laughs) Obviously, she's cooler than Iggy Azalea. In some review I read of it, it was like, that's the fancy of 2001 or whatever. Yeah. And then on Southside, I agree with you that that feels more in the alternative zone, but maybe that helps set up some of the electronic dance music sort of aesthetics that she gets into on Lamb. I think ultimately both serve to sort of help position the idea that people care more about Gwen Stefani or are really interested in Gwen Stefani. And that was the other thing that I wanted to ask you just before we get into talking about Lamb, which is, I mean, you were talking about your friend bringing Rocksteady, which is the third No Doubt record Mm -hmm. and the last one before the solo career to school. Like, do you remember having an appetite for Gwen Stefani solo music before hearing Lamb? Was that something you remember being like, I wonder when, or is she going to, or whatever? Yeah, it's funny. My younger brother bought me the CD for Lamb when it came out because he knew that I liked No Doubt. It's hard for me to go back in time to my childhood like that, but I definitely was waiting for it. Mm -hmm. I was excited for it. Mm -hmm. Once it came out, I just felt completely saturated with it. Yeah, I feel like I was listening to that album, not just because I had the CD, but it was on the radio constantly. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So yeah, at least for me, as someone who was a No Doubt fan, I was excited for the solo stuff. Me too. And I remember feeling that it was inevitable. I remember feeling like this is something that is bound to happen. She feels so much bigger than this group in some ways. And I wonder what that's going to be like. All right. So let's talk about how she sets this album up. Basically, she decides to go solo. She has the support of Jimmy Iovine to do so. How do you understand what she's envisioning for this record and the process she goes through in terms of making the album? So you had said before that she was like, oh, I just kind of want to make a silly little dance record. Yeah. And at one point she wanted to put out like a silly little dance record under her initials GS. And Jimmy Iovine was like, please don't do that. (laughs) You could have something... So, so, so much bigger here. I mentioned before that interview in The Guardian where she talked about, I just want to make a pop record. I want to throw everything at the wall. I feel like she really wanted to make an album that spoke to her obsession with the 80s, Mm. an 80s pop record. She was on the Rocksteady tour and she heard this 80s dance song, Club Nouveau's Why You Treat Me So Bad. And she turned to Tony and she was like, I want to do that song. Mm. I want to make music like that. And so I feel like her going solo, it didn't feel to me that she was doing like a total huge rebrand. Rather, she was sort of extending what she was doing in No Doubt at that point. Because by the time she goes solo, they had become a much glossier band than what they were initially doing. I think it started with that 80s pop obsession and just sort of pulling in all of these different influences like freestyle and R&B and rap and things like that. And it seemed clear to me that she wanted to make like a huge statement in terms of the genres that she could work in and the ways in which she could pull herself in a million different directions. It's interesting to me thinking about the 80s thing because I think maybe another pivotal sort of setup to Love Angel Music Baby's 80s sounding material is No Doubt's cover of Talk Talk's It's My Life, which became a really big hit in 2003, the year before Lamb came out. And I think that that song feels also like a really important sort of vibe check on where Gwen was going because that's a big 80s synth pop sounding record that I think could have fit in on Love Angel Music Baby in some ways and was like a really Mm -hmm. big hit, maybe even a bigger hit in some ways than some of the songs from Rocksteady were. That's an interesting moment, thinking of her seeing that Club Nouveau song. And then, from what I understand, too, a lot of the album tracks on this record were done, but it seemed as though there was a moment towards the end of the record where a lot of the bigger songs on the album came together. I don't know. Do I have that right? I know that Hollaback Girl came very, very late in the process. Yeah, Hollaback Girl came late in the process because I think there was a moment where she was like, I need a bad bitch track or something. Right, right. <laughs> she needed something saltier. An attitude track, I think she said. Yeah, and I mean, obviously that song has such an incredible backstory with the Courtney Love diss. Right. I mean, one of the reasons that I love that record is because of how many touchstones it pulls on. Bubble Pop Electric and Danger Zone are like new wave tracks. Crash and Sirius are pulling from Lisa Lisa and Debbie Deb and freestyle artists. 
yeah, it was just her sort of pulling from a lot of sounds and styles that I think are cool, but I don't think were cool at the time. Mm. Thinking about 80s music, thinking about new wave music, I don't know, it has gotten trendier in the past 10 years. But at the time, I don't think people were like, I want to make a new wave album. I want to make 80s pop music. Yeah, this is such an interesting point. I think you're totally right. I mean, this was not the sound of pop at the moment. As I said, it was light R&B adjacent. So I think that that's a really interesting point. Two things I want to bring up. One is Madonna obviously feels like a really important mm -hmm. thing that she was looking to here. And it's interesting because I think in some ways, Gwen's vocals are a lot of times playing on some of the sort of overly cutesy Material Girl-esque early Madonna vocal stylings. that then gets always been sort of true. And I think maybe there was a wondering, what if I actually just went and made Madonna records? And there are certain songs on Love Angel Music Baby that I feel like are explicit Madonna homages that we can get into, like The Real Thing, for instance, being one that comes to mind. Yeah. But I think it's really interesting just looking at this track list and the producers that she turns to here, which include Nellie Hooper, who was like a very important Madonna collaborator in the mid-90s. There's definitely explicit ideas about what if I make Madonna songs. The other thing that I felt, and I brought her up earlier, and I think that this is interesting, and I would love, love, love to ask Gwen if she was into these albums, is Kalisa's record from the year before, Tasty, mm -hmm. which featured Milkshake, feels like a really important thing that maybe can also set up a little bit of our borrowing conversation, which is obviously <laughs> such an important part of any Gwen Stefani conversation. But Khalees is an interesting story and I think is worth talking about for a second here, which is that here you have a black woman who, in a similar way to Gwen, is both making pop music, but pop music that feels edgier, has an avant-garde twist to it, and is kind of genreless, especially on Tasty, is sort of hopping between rock and hip-hop and 80s synth pop and whatever. There's like a polyglot sort of approach to making pop music that really feels like a similar sort of approach to what Gwen took. And if you look at the producer tab, on Tasty, I mean, there is a lot of overlap between who worked on that record. Of course, you have the Neptunes that become integral in both of these albums, but you also have Andre 3000, who becomes integral in both of these albums. You have Dallas Austin, who becomes integral in both of these albums. There is a lot of overlap between these records. And Khalees, obviously, Black woman, struggled very mightily to sort of gain a foothold as a mainstream pop artist in the way that Tasty, I think, was meant to do. Obviously, Milkshake lives on, but never really was able to get outside of that fully. And I do sometimes think of Love Angel Music Baby as taking a lot of the ideas and approach to pop music that Tasty was taking and putting it into the package of this gorgeous blonde white woman. And that sort of cracking off the next year is just an interesting little dichotomy going on there. That's just something I've always waited to share with the world. And here's my opportunity to, to put that out there. No, I think that's a brilliant take. You mentioned before about Blow Your Mind and this sort of need at the time for pop stars to be literate mm. in rap and R&B. Mm -hmm. But I think what Gwen does with her solo career, which is so prophetic when I think about the last 15 years of pop music, is that she doesn't just prove her fluency 
she fully adopts it. Yes. The Neptunes are producing for her. I mean, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, the sound of Janet Jackson are on this album. And I think when a lot of people talk about Gwen Stefani's solo career, I feel like they tend to focus on the aesthetics she was playing with. Mm. And we'll definitely get into that just in terms of the weird (laughs) racial blurring of her style. I love all the delicate ways we're trying to (laughs) talk about the fact that she was the most violent cultural appropriator in pop history. But yeah, we're being so delicate with our girl. (laughs) We're like, she's doing a lot. (laughs) But long way to go. It is so much more than gold jewelry and putting herself in music videos where she looks like she's a Latina or something like that. (laughs) It's in the music itself and I think that's a really good point. And I think it really does prove what people are willing to popularize when a certain person is singing this music. And I think tying it directly to Tasty is when you put it that way, it is kind of depressing. Mm -hmm. I do think that Gwen sort of identified, oh, it's not just enough to be a vocalist on a rap song or an R&B song. Mm -hmm. I have to make that music myself Mm -hmm. and I need to dress myself Mm -hmm. like one of the bad girls of R&B, even when I am not. Yeah. And for better and worse, she committed to the bit. I mean, I think she believed that this was her providence. It speaks to the racial tensions of this era that were unspoken really at the time, but now I think would be nonstop fodder for think pieces, which is that she felt very, I think, welcomed into and that that was her space to own. And I remember that was kind of how the culture felt about it at the same time. I noticed in a lot of retrospective reviews of the record, for instance, she gets called annoying a lot because of the brattiness of the whole thing, but it never really calls out the fact that Part of the success of this record and part of what makes it sort of weird and interesting and icky in some ways is that people were cheering her on as she sort of adopted this guise as a hip-hop adjacent woman. And it's so funny to see that in the package, not just of a white woman, but of the blondest, somebody that really embraced this very traditional looking version of white femininity. You know, she would mix and match. Oftentimes on top, she'd look like a pinup girl and then on bottom, she'd look like a punk and that would be the dichotomy of Gwen's androgyny, Mm -hmm. as you sort of point out earlier. But really, in reality, you're looking at somebody who's, especially by the time this record comes out, is a high fashion plate white woman with the bleachest blonde hair in history who is 35 years old. All of these things that make this very tense in a certain way to sort of think about. And yet, I just remember the feeling at the time being she is savvy and we accept her in this way and she works in this context. And that is weird, (laughs) like looking back on it. Yeah, it definitely felt like... The chaos of Love Angel Music Baby, and by chaos, I mean the number of sounds and styles that I feel like she's pulling together and like the visuals of it all, is its strength. (laughs) But when you look at the nitty gritty of it, you're like, oh, she was really pulling a lot of stuff together that did not seem in line with what she was doing. I also think the 80s, I kind of get at this in my own retrospective of the album that you mentioned. Because of its 80s sound, I feel like she gets away with a lot because she's referencing this 80s new wave music. You mentioned Madonna, who was also someone who had her own 
sort of cultural appropriation oh, yeah. scandals many times over. But being a white woman who is pulling from Japanese culture and black music and R&B and rap and things like that sort of gets tied up in this tornado of excess. And eclecticism, quote unquote. Yeah, 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 yeah. And camp, which is another big part of this. Yes. I think she truly thought of herself as a genius curator. And in a way, she was. Yes, she was. <laughs> she was. I mean, it speaks to why she was also successful in fashion, I think. They're really intertwined. Let's talk about the first single, What You Waiting For? Because I think this is a really important mission statement for the record and something that flies in the face of some of the other parts of this album that I think sort of revel in frivolity and in materialism and surface level. This is actually a pretty complex and interesting and challenging sonic sound compared to what we were describing as the center of pop radio at this time. Talk to me about What You Waiting For and how this record works as the first thing that we all heard from it. Yeah, I love this song. Yeah, it's such a good one. I loved it when it came out. And I think revisiting this album again for this episode has made me realize how genius of a move it was to release this as the f- She could have released Rich Girl or Hollaback Girl as the first single, but yeah. what you're waiting for, it feels like the most rock heavy Mm -hmm. thing on the album. It's sort of like a stepping stone between people who loved No Doubt. It sounds like it could have been something on Rocksteady or whatever. But I think it's kind of a brilliant thesis statement for what she does on the album. Right. We talked before about age. And so this song was inspired by her writer's block. Yes. Which she mentioned before. And she wrote it with Linda Perry, who was really pushing her. And and the music video makes reference to this too. It's like a five minute long music video. And the first two minutes are basically a mini movie about how she can't write a song. (laughs) But it's also just a great song about feeling the pressures of going solo, the pressures of being a 35-year-old woman who is trying to be a pop star. And mm. the song does this really wonderful, anxious thing where she's singing in all of these different voices. So it sounds like she's battling mm. voices in her head. are telling her you've got your million dollar contract they're all waiting for your hot track it's just a great setup to be like okay Gwen Stefani is that pop rock front woman you know and love and she can still do that she's gonna bring that energy to this album but this is the start of something big it feels like a song that's like buckle up bitch <laughs> yeah, yeah. statement yeah totally I love what you're talking about about the anxiety that she gets I think when at her best when she minds her indecision and paranoia is a really interesting look on her don't speak has a lot of that feeling to it to me yes there's a really interesting thing where she feels betwixt and between a lot a lot of her music from no doubt through the solo stuff actually revolves around her complex relationship to Gavin and how anxious she feels about him all the time and is he committed to her or not which is so interesting when you think about how their relationship actually played out and when she gets into that she gets some of her most interesting music I think and this song gets into not anxiety about Gavin but another big thing that I mentioned earlier that Gwen often talks about which is I don't think the process of making music comes easily to her and I think that this song brilliantly meta takes that on 
in a way that I think was just a stroke of utter brilliance. And I agree with you. The age thing is such an important thing. I think one of the great motifs of this song is that ticking clock. Yeah. Noise, which will then appear again the next year in another record that I think is important in a broader lineage in pop, which is Madonna's Hung Up. Talk about the connection between the two of them, both artists who are a little bit older than your average pop star, who are making explicit reference to time passing by or trying to talk about the anxiety of time passing by. By using a ticking clock and who are both also, you were talking about the rock influence of this song, which is totally true. There's big rock guitars on it, but it's also a very fast moving dance pop, electro pop number, which was very out of step with the sound of American pop at that time, but which will four years later, once Gaga hits the scene and all these artists hit the scene, it feels like it's presaging the sound of this sort of dance pop for the floor sound that hung up also I think is another important moment in the lineage of doing so. It's also a fascinating fake out because there's this moment at the beginning where it's almost like she starts with a little piano ballad and mm -hmm. you think you're about to get, I was thinking this time when I was listening to it, was that her sort of going like, well, this is what a solo song from someone who leaves a rock band should sound like in the past. Like maybe they go and they make a little quiet acoustic piano ballad album. Yeah. And then she's like, psych, <laughs> here's my like 138 BPM rock dance electro pop song. You were talking about the Alice in Wonderland references. Again, I kept thinking about Gaga because I was like, when Gaga arrived a few years later, her sort of campiness, her excess, that was such a refreshing moment in pop music where she was bringing in this absolute blown out, excessive, campy sort of aesthetic value back into pop that felt really counter again to the Britney and Jennifer Lopez and even Rihanna earlier on in her career. These beautiful women who were all about sex appeal. And I feel like watching this Gwen video and seeing her in these incredible, bizarre John Galliano dresses and bringing in these really glossy, eccentric references and the trippy quality of the whole thing. It felt radical at the time and it did feel like table setting for where pop was going. But at the time felt risky. And I think what's interesting is that this song did not perform particularly well in America. I think it hit number 41 on the Hot 100 here. It did well in Europe where dance pop songs tend to do better just all the time. But it was interesting because I think this was, as you mentioned, a pivotal bridge song from No Doubt into the solo career. And I remember hearing it and being like, this is the fiercest fucking shit I've ever heard in my life. And she really did it. But it's interesting looking back, the song was not a smash here in the way that the next couple of singles would be. Are you enjoying this episode? Because if you are, let me tell you, if you're only listening to the Pop Pantheon main feed, you're only getting half the story. Over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, we're now offering at least three, yes, three bonus episodes of the show per month. We're talking about all your favorite new albums like Jesse Ware's That Feels Good, digging into all the big singles of the month on our new music speed rounds, and of course, deep diving on classic albums like Janet's The Velvet Rope, Ariana Grande's Positions, Lady Gaga's Chromatica, and so much more with all of your favorite Pop Pantheon guests. All of this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So what are you doing? Go over to patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the 
show notes of this episode to sign up at the icon tier today. All right, so let's talk about the rest of this record. I think we should mow through the singles quickly and then we can talk about whatever else we want to bring up. Second single is Rich Girl. This song is interesting in numerous ways to me. Talk to me about Rich Girl, what it sounds like, what's happening on it, and how you feel about this song. I love this song. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I still love Mm -hmm. this song. So Rich Girl is actually based on a song by the reggae duo Luchi Lu and Michi Wan, their 1996 song Rich Girl. Mm -hmm. So already it's kind of a cover. And that song interpolates or is basically also a cover of the iconic Fiddler on the Roof yes. track. And there is a musical theater thread through Gwen's career that we'll touch on again <laughs> and has happened in No Doubt. So anyway, that's another funny adjacent part of Gwen Stefani's musical aesthetics. Yeah. And Eve is on the track, mm-hmm. so she's bringing back Eve. It's not surprising to me that What Are You Waiting For didn't do that well, because I feel like Rich Girl is the pop single. Yes, right. It also just, even if it's based on a reggae song, it also has this weird Bollywood flavor to me. I don't know what about <laughs> I see it. That. I can totally. The like international reference, I feel like I'm at Epcot on this album. <laughs> I mean, come on, she's also uh, robbing Jewish culture. Hello. We have not been paid our due yet. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to erase. How dare you erase the cultural appropriation of shtetl culture? Yeah, the most blonde white woman ever being like, if I was a rich girl. (laughs) It's just such a weird combination of influences to put into your first big pop single from the album. And she pulls it off. It's interesting, too, because I think this record is the most in conversation with the sound of Rocksteady in terms of the fact that it is dancehall, is reggae, which was very much that album's central idea. I think one of the things that this is interesting that this sets up in terms of a POV that she presents on this record, you were talking about her being like, if I was a rich girl, i.e., but you're already this massive celebrity, you make reference in your retrospective review about the fact that, so once rap comes into the game, I think there's more of like a celebration of materialism as it exists now, like talking just about being rich or having money and what that's like. Yeah. And you sort of, I think, talked about in your review how in the 80s, there was a lot more of pop music that sort of was imagining lifestyles of the rich and the famous from the perspective mm-hmm. of an every person. And I think that, that was a really interesting point because this song really, I think, sets up that idea, which happens on a lot of songs on this record, which is Gwen almost imagining herself pre-fame thinking about fame. And I think that that's what this song is taking on the POV of, because this record does deal heavily in materialism. It's a theme that comes up over and over again on this, which I think is adjacent to her interest in hip hop. Yeah. You think about a song like Luxurious, for instance, being this very explicitly hip-hop sounding track produced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis that is sampling the Isley Brothers, which I think for me, I remember the minute I heard that song, the first thing that came to mind is Big Papa by Biggie, which also interpolates that song. So the whole record is about how she works hard and so she and Gavin can have really luxurious items. And the hook of the song is cha-ching, cha-ching. She's name-checking all of these luxury brands. Expensive. We know how to live, baby. When 
Again, interesting moment, I think, and smart of her, beyond just adopting the sound and production of hip hop, she really adopts a persona that I don't think other pop stars were really doing at that moment, where she's actually inhabiting rap tropes in some ways in her lyrics. Britney Spears was not at that moment name checking Vivian Westwood designers yeah. in her song <laughs> and luxury alcohol brands and all that stuff. That was very much what rappers did, but pop girls didn't really do that, I guess. Maybe JLo did a little bit, but she was really inhabiting the role of the male rapper who's like a baller in the back of their limousine and actually doing that. Again, awkward in some ways, but also brilliant in some ways, which is maybe the thesis of this entire album. Awkward and brilliant in equal measure. <laughs> but Rich Girl, I think, also really sets up some of the fascinations on this album with things that come up a lot, like Vivian Westwood, punk, fashion, designer, extraordinaire, someone she name checks six different times on this album. I think also we should talk about the Harajuku girls maybe a little bit here because this is a really important moment. In the music video, there's another incredibly campy. This music video is so hilarious and campy. She and Gwen are <laughs> pirates on a ship and it's the most disnified, crazy looking pirate ship. And I think that we should talk about the fact that some of her co-pirates are this group of four Japanese women, the Harajuku girls. In the song, she makes reference. She says, I dress them wicked. I give them names, love, angel, music, baby. And in the video, she sort of like points to each one of them. They are these silent caricatures of Harajuku culture that she just sort of totes around with her through the album. Can you talk a little bit about the Harajuku girls? Yeah. <laughs> what was happening there, how it seemed in the time to you, and what you think about it now? And we can also talk about the song Harajuku Girls, which is a fucking insane song. Insane. So let's come back to that, too. Yeah, the Harajuku Girls, you can't talk about this album without talking about them. So yeah, Gwen was very infatuated with Japanese culture, and she was very infatuated with Harajuku culture, which is the fashion that happens there, and Lolita style that happens there. And so, as you said, she sort of creates this group of four women who she called the Harajuku girls. They're each named Love, Angel, Music, Baby, because I guess they didn't deserve real names. And they're just, yeah, sort of a group of giggling Japanese women who were with her on red carpets. And you see them in the music video. She brings them up in the songs quite a few times. And this was like a pretty, rightfully so, like deeply controversial aspect of this album and this press rollout because... Gwen Stefani was basically making these women sort of an accessory to the album. And mm -hmm. it was so controversial that the comedian Margaret Cho actually wrote a piece on her website calling out the use of the Harajuku girls and basically called it a minstrel show. And she wasn't wrong. They were totally feeding into these stereotypes of Japanese women and they barely spoke and whatever. And Stefani was really upset. She was like, Margaret Cho didn't do her research and has continued to this day. Even as recently as 2023, Gwen yeah. Stefani has defended the Harajuku girls. Yeah. She has taken the line that a lot of white people take where they appropriate other cultures. She has said, you know, I appreciate Japanese culture. She really feels mm -hmm. like she identifies with Japanese culture. She told Allure in 2023, she was like, I'm Japanese and I didn't know it once I learned about these girls and the fashion. 
So they're like her sidekicks throughout this entire album and press tour. And talking about getting away with things. Yeah, I mean. We've talked a bit about how fashion has influenced this album. She references fashion in the music and she was also starting her own fashion line. And Gwen Stefani was beginning to really be embraced by the high fashion industry. Vogue cover. Mm -hmm. Jean Galliano did her famous pink Mm -hmm. toned wedding gown. Hell yeah. And I think what she does with the Harajuku girls to me feels like a very fashion brain thing to do in 2004 to be like Mm. we're gonna do this editorial Mm -hmm. in japan where white models are in Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gas stations or something and it's very yeah so this was really not a good look at all even at the time and we were not woke quote unquote as we are now to all of this stuff yeah it's so bizarre looking back at it and also just her attitude towards all of it i mean first of all just going back to the rich girl video for a second she has full geisha hair at one moment in it also there's a really awkward scene where the harajuku girls are playing with a doll of gwen stefani and it has this really awkward connotation of watching these asian women sort of idolize and look up to this blonde Barbie girl. And it's really strange. Her lack of self-awareness around all of that is truly emblematic of a lot of rich white women's perspective on people of other cultures. It's nakedly so. Everything that's a strength of this album is a weakness of this album. Yeah. (laughs) Her commitment to the bit is both what makes it utterly fascinating, even in its garish horridness at certain moments, but also makes it so complex to engage with all of the material on it and around it. I just think about that lyric and then I just want to use that as a jumping off point to talk about the song Harajuku Girls, which is, I give them names, I dress them up. There's this whole attitude of they're my little dolls and they're happy being my little dolls that is just so bizarre. It's incredibly tone deaf and bizarre. And then the song Harajuku Girls, which is this lush Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis Fantasia that sounds really beautiful in a lot of ways. And in a way is both this album's centerpiece and its hugest issue is this song basically about her exploration of Japanese culture. You can so see how she sees it as a song where she's celebrating them. The whole perspective is, I walk through your streets and you inspire me and everything that you do is so cool. And she, at some point, adopts a Japanese accent and starts to almost imitate their voices in a way that sounds really awkward. And then there's this absolutely fascinating line that has always just stuck really deep in my craw as the essential problem with Gwen Stefani and this album. She says at some point, did you see your inspiration in my latest collection? Just wait till you get your little hands on L-A-M-B. Yeah. Did you see your inspiration in my latest collection? And I always just think to myself, all right, so here's this woman that is literally proudly saying, I went to your country, I stole your culture, I'm making it in my own fashion brand, and then I'm going to sell that fashion brand back to you. Yeah. It's honestly jaw on the floor. It's one of the most despicable moments in modern 21st century mainstream pop history, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, you said before, all the albums 
strengths are also its weaknesses. Yeah. She made a pop album and I have this vision in my head of like a kid in a candy store who's yes, given totally. this huge budget and she's like, I want Galliano gowns. I want the Neptunes. And it gets a little crazy where you're like, maybe not needing everything <laughs> is the right way to put it, but like maybe you shouldn't put every single thing into this. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, I'm kind of happy it exists because I do see it as a time capsule yes. of our attitudes at this time. Totally. This gets back into Taylor Swift rewriting Better Than Revenge on Speak Now and trying to correct history mm-hmm. on slut shaming of that. But like, don't do that because we did slut shame in 2008 or whenever. You know what I mean? I completely agree. Yes. We did that. And we should remember that. And as long as she understands that that was weird now when she's looking back on it, we all did that. She was a reform reflection of our culture back to us. And this record is that too. I mean, you talked about how Gwen Stefani still seems not to totally understand how she transgressed (laughs) here. But in some ways, it makes this album all the more fascinating to me, I think, looking back, how incredibly tone deaf this woman was at the same time and how much we all kind of loved it. We all really embraced her in this way. And also... It was tone deaf enough that even in 2004, a time, as I mentioned, where we were not discussing these things in the way that we discussed them now, there were still an uproar. Not enough to sink the record, obviously, but there was definitely pushback on this enough. She was going that far. Yeah. And I totally agree. Like, I'm glad it exists. And it so was a reflection of what so much of our culture was letting slide or not letting slide. Is that when I was thinking about the cultural appropriation of this album in so many different ways, I was thinking of pop stars who've come after her, who've been accused of doing this, people like Miley Cyrus, Mm -hmm. people like Ariana Grande. Mm -hmm. The thing about Gwen Stefani was that even with all of these borrowings that she's doing and appropriation that she's doing. She was still like, I'm Gwen Stefani. Yeah. I am a white woman Mm -hmm. from California. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like a black fishing thing or anything like that. Right. I really think that she was like, I am the vessel through which these producers can make this music Mm. through the fashion that can happen. Mm. And I think the success of it all, as you said before, really speaks to what we let slide and what we celebrated. Yes. Everyone was like, you can do this, Gwen Stefani. I mean, not every Yeah. No, most people. Yeah. And including black gatekeepers. I mean, these producers were working with her. Eve was co-signing her. I mean, like Andre 3000. I know. (laughs) A thought leader in music at this time. Really somebody that people saw as one of the coolest, most avant-garde people working in the pop space at that time was here producing two very interesting songs. I mean, the Andre 3000 songs are so interesting on this album to me because A, you've got, as you mentioned, Long Way to Go, which literally samples Martin Luther King speeches. We'll leave that one there. And then they have this other collaboration you brought up earlier with Bubble Pop Electric, which is almost like 1950 and 2050 at the same time. It's like this bubbling, gurgling, electro, Betty Boop meets teen rock of the 50s. I think this is another interesting window into another fascinating part of Gwen's persona on this album, which is Gwen is like the perennial bratty teen. Yeah. You have songs on this record that are more mature, but Gwen, I think both to her credit and her detriment, is always able to effectively go back to this like pouty teen who's like having a moment. This record, I think, really effectively leans into that. It's a back and forth between her and this guy that's taking her out on a date and they're going to have sex in the backseat or make out in the backseat. And there's this one moment Andre says on Bubble Pop Electric, Hi, Mrs. Stefani. Mr. Stefani? 
be where you want to go, huh? They take on this teen persona, which I think is so weirdly effective for a woman of her age. She's always able to go back to that in a way that I think we would find strange and awkward on a lot of the other 35-year-old women at that moment. And I think that's a great entree for us to talk about this album's most successful single, its most memorable song, its most influential song, Holla Back Girl, which is this martial stomping marching band spare Neptune song Again, super hip-hop influenced, maybe one of the least explicitly 80s songs on the album, I would say. Although, Hey Mickey came to mind. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but what it reminds me most of production-wise is a previous Neptune's production, which was the Clips' Grinding, which was this incredibly spare, sound like it was being played on trash cans, and it was essentially only percussion. This song is basically like that warped into this sort of pop space. Let's talk about Hollaback Girl. You made reference a little bit to like how that song came together. Can you share a little bit about the backstory, the Courtney Love of it all, how this song came into being? So Courtney Love gave an interview with Seventeen Magazine where she said, being famous is just like being in high school, but I'm not interested in being the cheerleader. I'm not interested in being Gwen Stefani. She's the cheerleader and I'm out in the smoker shed mm. is the quote that Courtney Love gave. Mm -hmm. And she was not wrong. Gwen Stefani is the cheerleader. <laughs> Courtney Love would be in the smoker shed. Yeah. Gwen Stefani got a whiff of this and was pissed and sort of wrote this song, Hollaback Girl, as a diss track to Courtney Love, where she fully assumes the voice and style and position of a cheerleader mm -hmm. <laughs> to throw it back in Courtney's face. The whole song is like, you're talking shit about me. You didn't think I would know. I heard that you were talking shit and you didn't think that I would hear it. People hear you talking like that, getting everybody fired up. So I'm ready to attack, gonna lead the back, gonna get a touchdown, gonna take you out. That's why put your pom-poms down, getting everybody fired up. And it has that beautiful refrain, this shit is bananas, B-A-N-A-N-A-S. As someone who was in fourth grade at the time mm -hmm. this album came out, mm -hmm. I was living this song up on the bus. <laughs> the oh, my like, oh my god. It's like a kid's song for adults. It's a great song to this day. Oh. This is one of those all-timers. It's so interesting to me that two of the best songs on this record, What You Waiting For and Holler Back Girl, are born out of Gwen narrating or taking ownership over the trickier parts of her persona or making the album. If What You Waiting For was her kind of going, all right, I'm gonna warp in the fact that I'm struggling to make this album into the album itself. She's also in this moment warping in metacriticisms about her into the songs themselves. It's like, it's this really effective writing technique she kind of returns to over and over again. Again, as someone who I think struggles to write songs, yeah. it's interesting to see how that's her way into the process. And the long tail influence of Love Angel Music Baby, which I truly think is one of the most influential pop records of all time. Mm -hmm. This whole bratty persona, I mean, I could not stop thinking about our girl Charlie yeah. listening to this song. There is no way that Charlie XCX did not listen to this song and was like, this is awakening something inside of me. Because there is something about this swaggering, attitude-y brat POV and persona that she strikes on this song 
that is just so influential on the way that so many pop stars sing from Charlie to Kim Petras to all of these all pop girlies that we look at today. And then also, I just think this song might be the greatest expression or the greatest vessel for that Gwen persona because it's literally creating a soundscape that suits that exact teen brattiness by bringing you back to the ideas of high school. I mean, she literally talks about meet me at the bleachers, no student teachers, whatever. (laughs) She's literally assuming the role of a 15-year-old girl and it provides that perfect vessel. And it's so profoundly dumb, but she sells it so hard. That's something Gwen is so good at over and over again on this album is taking things that seem sort of silly and dumb and she's so deeply invested in the cheesiness of the whole thing that it just makes it cool all over again. She finds a way to take things past idiotic into something that feels cool. Like that Bananas chant in someone else's hands could have been the cheesiest, stupidest shit ever and yet somehow it comes across as the most genius, brilliant, hooky thing that she could have come up with. And I just love this stomping beat and then that dripping synthesizer and the horns playing on it and the little acoustic guitar thing that happens. Like, it's such a genius Neptune's beat that ended up being not just influential attitude-wise on like a Charlie, but I don't think you get Promiscuous Girl without this song. I don't think you get London Bridge without this song. I think every pop girly tried to find themselves a Hollaback Girl after this record came out. All right, so that's the first three singles. I think we should spend a moment on Cool. Cool, you mentioned earlier as being a very mature pop song. Yeah. Something she returns to, she's done a lot of times, is mining the relationship with Tony Canal for endless drama. Here, she's sort of taking on the perspective of we have finally gotten to this place where we're both with other people and now we can be friends. Again, a very interesting and sort of mature pop record that takes the frivolous sounds of teeny bopper Madonna and Cyndi Lauper songs and gives it the spin of aged perspective, which I think is a really interesting, definitely one of the best songs on this record. All right, so Rich Girls, the top 10 hit. Hollow Back Girls, obviously, like a multiple week number one. How do you remember Gwen's place in pop following this album? Do you remember her being the biggest star on earth? Where did she sit amongst the other pop stars of this moment? I don't remember her being the biggest star on earth, but I do feel like that album, like I mentioned before, that I felt oversaturated by it. Right. And it definitely felt like it successfully launched her into Gwen Stefani as celebrity versus just Gwen Stefani as artist. We talked about the fashion, but she also had her fashion line. So I think she was top tier in terms of radio play. Yeah. But I don't know if she felt to me as one of the biggest. I don't know. What about you? Yeah, I think she was still kind of like the cool person's pop star. Yes. She managed to both infiltrate radio and be played amongst the other big female pop artists of this moment that were less interesting than her in many ways, but she still managed to maintain her cool edge factor. It's one of the real neat tricks of Love Angel Music Baby to me is that she really walked away from this with her cred intact, even as she sort of explicitly made what she thought was like a silly dance pop record. Yeah. And I think that that's really one of the most interesting parts about this. One of the things that was most interesting to me, though, was shelving the cultural appropriation combo. Mm-hmm. I think this is the kind of album that I think a lot of pop critics today would rush to embrace just because of its eccentricity and its ability to play in lots of different milieus. 
the critical reception to this was really harsh. Oh, yeah. There's a review in Pitchfork that was like one of the grosser things I've ever read. I mean, not that this record was not deserving of some criticism, but people really, really seem to hate her. Yes. The critical establishment and a lot of the white male critical establishment. I mean, I couldn't believe some of the quotes that I pulled out of this Pitchfork review. Interesting that Pitchfork reviewed this record to begin with in 2004, because this was not a moment where Pitchfork was engaging with pop music in a serious way. And I think that that speaks to the fact that Gwen was seen as cool in some ways by the rock establishment and enough so to warrant this review. But I mean, this guy was basically being like, she should stick to making fashion. They called her fans young mall slut. It was interesting to see how reviled this album was by like the male rock critical establishment at the time, which I think speaks maybe more to how they were viewing pop in general than to any actual assessment of this album. Yeah, I mean, I think it's to go back to a point you made earlier about good taste and what's considered good taste. Mm -hmm. I grew up listening to freestyle. I grew up listening to Lisa Lisa and Company B and whatever. That to me is good music. Yeah, that's music that takes effort and craft. Yeah. And if you are a rock critic who like doesn't think that dance music and electropop and rap and R&B is intelligent music, right. you're going to go into an album like this and not understand the effort and time and artistry. So yeah, I think criticism has changed a lot. And I think if this album were to come out today, as you said, cultural appropriation aside, right. I think songs like Bubble Pop Electric would have a whole new audience because times have changed. How do you think that the cultural appropriation thing has affected this record's legacy in your mind? You know, I think we've both spoken about our deep affection for it. Yeah. In spite of some of that stuff, how do you think that that has affected this album as we look at it through a 2023 lens? I think it has affected it pretty harshly. Yeah. But I also think one of the reasons that it's clouded the album is also because of what Gwen Stefani did after it. Right, right, right. How does she respond to that today? No remorse at all. Right. No critical thinking. And also just that album did feel like the height of her solo work mm -hmm. in many ways. And so for that to be the main thing on the table and for it to be so clouded with these issues and for her to not feel remorse over them, I think taints it in a lot of ways. So you think if she had at some point been like, hey, I get that the Harajuku girls thing was weird and I just was kind of blind to that stuff at the time and I thought I was just giving a platform to a lot of these subcultures that I ultimately was exploiting in some ways or yeah. caricaturizing in some ways. Do you think this record could be more... I guess appreciated for how influential I think it truly is and was at the moment. I think, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it would be nice to get that from her. And I think it would change the way that I think the album exists. Like it's a little radioactive now, you feel like. In some ways I'm like the worst person to ask because I'm like, this album rules. <laughs> I know. And so am I. It's this really weird thing because I feel like in critical discourse, there's no way to talk about it without just really highlighting that part of it. Yeah. But then it's like in my DJ gigs, these songs live the fuck on. Rich Girl and Hollerback Girl in particular have transcended time. They're appreciated by people that didn't grow up listening to them. They're two of pop songs that I think in general really have stood. Yeah. You play Holler Back Girl to this day in a set, in pretty much any setting, gay club, wedding, whatever. That song transcends in the way that very few pop songs do. Mm -hmm. She continues to kind of like beat her critics in some ways. And yet this record does continue to feel like it's impossible to bring up, at least in critical discourse, without putting the main focus on how 
awkward it is. It's a very strange thing, but I'm glad to have gotten to think about what I said earlier, which is my main takeaway, which is that I think it's awkward moves make it all the more important. It's important in so many different ways. That's why to me, as I said, if someone asked me to make a list mapping out music for myself, I would put this in the top 10. Yeah. All right. It seems like she sort of rushed out this follow-up to sort of capitalize on the success of this record, which I think was surprising even to her and to Jimmy. This album was incredibly successful in a way that I kind of feel like in some of the quotes I was reading from Gwen, she would have been fine if this didn't do that great and she just hopped back to working with No Doubt. I think she did sort of see this as a folly that she was willing to take a risk on but could have seen it going either way. I think this album was more successful than she imagined it was going to be, which led her to very quickly hop back in the studio and try to make a follow-up, which was 2006's The Sweet Escape. Let's talk about this broadly. How do you feel about this record? What's happening on this record? How is it building on what's happening from before? And what's working and what's not, I guess? (laughs) So I don't like this album. You and me both, sister. (laughs) Although there are some good songs. There are, there are. Something that is fascinating to me about this album is that I was reading some reviews of it And critics were very harsh towards it. Yes. I feel like critics were like, I feel like it retreads Mm -hmm. too much of Love Angel Music Baby. The songs sound too similar. Mm -hmm. I kind of disagree. I don't think the songs sound too similar. I think the songs sound boring. Yes. I think that Gwen got what she wanted, which was to be a capital P pop star. Sure. Solo pop star. Yeah. And after making that weird clusterfuck of an album, Love Angel Music Baby, which we both talked about that we love. Yes. The songs on The Sweetest to me feel like songs that anyone could sing. I mean, the title track yeah. with its like millennial whoop, Wii U. There's notes of weirdness. I mean, obviously, Wind It Up yes. is cuckoo crazy. So there's songs on this album that I think are kind of boring, like Four in the Morning, Sweet Escape, Early Winter, I'm Asleep. But then I think there are songs like Wind It Up where the Neptunes production really worked for her on Love Angel Music Baby. But on this album, I don't know what it is. Some of the Neptunes tracks, I feel like their production overpowers her. Mm. They feel like it's more of a Neptune song than like a Gwen Stefani song. That's my overall take on this album. (laughs) I think that's a very fair take. Here's my galaxy brain on Sweet Escape. Mm -hmm. Holla Back Girl was the song that most squarely smashed from the first record. Yes. We've talked about what a polyglot sonic experience Love Angel Music Baby is. But I'd say if I had to locate a central aesthetic thesis, it's what you said early on, which is that 80s dance pop seems to be the animating central force of some of this music. Mm -hmm. It's hard to say that any one genre dominates Love Angel Music Baby, but you've got the real thing. You've got Crash. You've got a series of songs that speak to perhaps a central thesis or interest of this record being the sounds of the 80s. However, as I mentioned, Hollaback Girl, Hey Mickey, I guess being the thing that muddies the waters here on this, to me feels like a very forward-thinking contemporary rap-sounding pop song from 2004. Yes. More than it sounds like an 80s record, even though there is 80s elements in the mix. And I think that she said, I want to go more in that direction. It's also the only Neptune song on Love Angel Music Baby, whereas the Neptunes are present on half the songs on The Sweet Escape. Yeah. So I think the thought process was more more contemporary hip-hop, less past pop references, Mm -hmm. less journey through the 80s and other pop references, or even the 50s as we talked about on that Andre 3000 song. So, Wind It Up. 
I am going to go on record and tell you that I fucking think Wind It Up is amazing. It's crazy in a good way. I think Wind It Up is cuckoo fucking bananas. Yodeling. The fucking Sound of Music sample. It's like she took Hollaback Girl and Rich Girl and smashed them into one thing. Musical theater reference and stomping Marshall marching band thing and yodeling. It's so crazy sounding. It literally is insane. And I just think it's a cacophony of strangeness that I appreciate. I like Gwen being as off the rails as possible. Yes. And this song is maybe the most off the rails she ever went. And the fact that this song got to number four, sounding as fucking insane as it does, only speaks to how imperial this moment in Gwen Stefani was for people. Because that song is weird as hell, and it's 10 trillion times better than the song that it inspired 20 years later, the Ariana Grande song, Seven Things, another song that pulls from the sound of music in a much less successful way to me, and another woman doing weird hip-hop poses. But I haven't really like wind it up sweet escape i agree generic sounding pop song but a very catchy totally i understand why that was the biggest hit from this record number one song akon obviously was the biggest thing on earth at that moment kind of like 50s doo-wop vibe whatever I'm like fine on Sweet Escape. Then I do agree with you about a lot of the rest of this album. It feels like they were rushing and they just beasted out a bunch of songs. Half of them are okay. Yummy is interesting to me as the Mm -hmm. kind of post-Milkshake Neptune song, but I agree with you that maybe it's more of a Neptune song than it is an effective Gwen song, but interesting, weird, bizarre song that uses industrial, candy-landy vibes to it. But then you've got a lot of really generic-sounding songs. Early Winter is down the middle, AOR rock song. You've got Four in the Morning, which I think is fine. But again, it's missing the eccentric, bizarre, neon-lit garishness that even songs like Cool that are more straightforward, serious pop songs still always felt like they were dealing in some element of camp that I think gets lost on some of these songs. And then some of the hip-hop songs are truly just embarrassing. Orange County Girl, there's just certain songs on here where I'm just like, she took this a step too far. The awkwardness is outweighing the sort of thrill of the eccentricity. I mean, it's her soft more solo album. Yeah. When you asked me before, like, how did she relate to the other pop girls? Was she one of the biggest pop stars? For me, it's like the sophomore album is going to be the answer to that question. And B-Day yeah. comes out this year. Right. A Girl Like Me comes out this year. Mm. That second album is like, what else do you have? Are you in this for the long term or was this a one-off? And I really feel like Sweet Escape, hearing it, I'm like, oh, Love Angel Music Baby was maybe a one-off mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. They did, like you said, copy-paste with Hollaback Girl instead of being like, okay, let, let's plan long-term. Yeah. You just made such a big statement with this album. What's the next statement do you want to make rather than let's capitalize on that one part of it as quickly as possible? So true. You know, it's interesting actually thinking about B-Day being like, I think the moment Beyonce kind of settled into who she was as an artist. And you think yes. about a song like Now That You Got It on Sweet Escape, which is a Swiss beat song.
Swiss Beats obviously produces a lot of the backbone of V-Day, Upgrade You, Get Me Bodied. And in some ways it's like, do you want to hear fucking white girl ass rap Gwen Stefani on these Swiss Beats bangers? Or you want to hear fucking Beyonce rip apart one of these Swiss Beats bangers? And I think with these Gwen solo albums in particular, she's walking a really delicate line in so many ways between being a cool girl and being fucking annoying and between taking inspiration, quote unquote, and feeling like she is in territory where she doesn't belong. She's constantly on this tightrope. And on Lamb, somehow she lands just on the right side of that in a lot of instances. And on a lot of these songs, I feel like she lands on the wrong side of that. Yeah. And then there's a bunch of tracks that just feel like they wouldn't have made a better album. No. If she had taken another year on this, half these songs would never have made this record. And my perception of the reception of this record is in standing with what we're saying, which is that Wind It Up is a minor hit off of the fumes of Love Angel Music Baby. Sweet Escape, the song itself, is a real bona fide hit that has lived on. And then the rest of this just fizzles into nothingness and more or less ends Gwen Stefani's very brief moment as a solo artist. Yeah. By the time we got through The Sweet Escape, did you remember kind of being done with Gwen Stefani's solo career? How were you feeling about that as a fan? Yeah, I remember even thinking then that I liked the title track. And then to mention Beyonce again and Rihanna, the pop pool was getting bigger in my perception. And I was like, I just feel like Gwen is not at front of mind anymore. Yeah. And I don't know, there was something as a fan of her, I remembered feeling her music had become kind of anonymous. Mm-hmm. Love Angel Music Baby, for all of its weirdness and issues, its success is that it's completely Gwen. Yeah. I really think only she could make that album. Yeah. And this album, like I said, there were so many songs where I'm like, anyone could have made that song. Yeah. You know what's so interesting, actually? A thought I had when we were making our Nelly Furtado episode is that <laughs> there's three albums that fit into a really interesting micro-generation of pop that did kind of exist in a liminal space where the teen pop wave was dying and the EDM wave had not quite come into formation yet. 04 to 06, let's talk about, right? So post-TRL peak, but we're also pre-Gaga Katie peak. Yeah. That's where this all exists. It's a little bit of a liminal pop space. Yeah. And there's three albums that I think exist in tandem with each other, and the other two exist in the shadow of Lamb, which is Fergie's The Duchess and Nelly Furtado's Loose. Yes. All albums made by pop females in their mid-30s, which was a very strange Mm -hmm. thing to be happening, who were all attempting to pivot into solo careers from weird places like Gwen was coming from No Doubt, Fergie was trying to find a solo career out of the Black Eyed Peas, and Nelly was trying to pivot out of her eccentric world pop sound into a more dance-friendly Timberland sound. And if we can just pretend The Sweet Escape didn't exist, which I kind of sometimes want to, they all kind of made one really important album that was hugely successful and then kind of dipped out of being pop stars. They made a solo crossover pop album as a folly in that exact span of two years and then was just like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. Bye. Wait, I kind of have two more to add okay. to this weirdness. Love it. So Jules. Yes, right. 0304 and Liz Fair self-titled. Right, 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 right. Lilith Fair rock girlies yeah. making pop truly as a folly. I mean, maybe not Liz Fair. Jewel was like, he, he, he. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah! Intuition, banger. Oh, hell yeah. I gotta break that out, actually. Follow your heart. <laughs> Crazy song. Okay, yeah, totally. That's so true. It's like this weird micro thing, right? Yeah, I'm thinking of women who like dip their toe in. Yeah, it's very interesting the way that they all were like, all right, well, we did that and now we're like Bye. gonna be moms. Yeah. <laughs> it was almost like putting on pop star as like a hat. Another cultural appropriation. 
station, just putting on Popstar and just being like, okay, goodbye. Because after Sweet Escape, Gwen returns to No Doubt in 2012 and releases Push and Shove, which we'll have covered on our last episode. She continues to be a pretty big celebrity fashion mogul. She joins The Voice in 2014. So she continues to be a big celebrity, but that's kind of the end of her as a successful musician. She releases in 2016, so 10 years after The Sweet Escape. Music has changed infinitum in this time period. Yeah. She releases this record, This Is What The Truth Feels Like. Very briefly, thoughts on This Is What The Truth Feels Like. What do you think about this record? What does it sound like and does it work for you? Yeah. Totally forgot I actually reviewed this album for MTV. Which maybe says it all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Two things happened before this album was released. So she did that Target commercial that aired during the Grammys Mm -hmm. where she sang Make Me Like You, which I think is an actually good song. It reminds me of the Cardigans and Kylie Minogue. Mm And then she debuted the song Used to Love You, which was this stripped down ballad and the live performance of it was making the rounds online. Oh yeah, Used to Love You is soul bearing and interestingly vulnerable. Maybe one of her most vulnerable songs ever. And an interesting conceit, which is essentially, I'm so far past the anger on you that I'm actually having memories about why I actually did used to like you. (laughs) Yeah. That's an interesting POV to take. And it has this really interesting use of the QP doll voice where she goes, I used to love you. That's one of the only songs to me that stood out when I was listening to this album. But overall, it is of no surprise to me that this album was basically whiffed at. I mean, it didn't seem like anybody paid attention to this in the slightest. The album was sort of positioned as her post-divorce return to music. She's being a songwriter. She's going to bear her soul. I mean, the album is very boring. Kind of like The Sweet Escape. There's so many songs on this album that just feel completely devoid of personality. And as much as it is about her divorce, and it certainly is personal in parts, it doesn't make a mark at all. It's so boring. And also as someone who was such a trendsetter that had such interesting curatorial tastes in producers and sounds, she doesn't touch that at all. She could pull in any producer she wants, but she worked with Justin Tranter and Julia Michaels, but still it's not a great album boring album. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, important to bring them up in the context of this album because they're in this really hot moment for producing well-made minimalist pop that is defined, I think, most clearly by Selena Gomez's two solo albums. It again speaks to, I think, an issue that loops this album in some ways back to the Second No Doubt album, Return of Saturn, which is how do we relate to Gwen Stefani making soul-bearing, straightforward-sounding, adult-skewing music? She loses her magic when she's not going for some of that brattier, garish, cupy, whatever thing. She needs that, and she needs the avant-garde impulse to like make it sing. And I agree with you. A lot of these songs are totally 
fine, but it's just so uninteresting. Therein kind of wraps up Gwen Stefani's music career. (laughs) But as we made reference to at the beginning of the conversation, she's kind of turned into like a really interesting and reviled almost figure in pop imagination. Can you just briefly talk about how we all think about Gwen Stefani now in the space she occupies in the public consciousness at this moment? Yeah, I feel like she is the most suburban basic that she's ever been. She's someone for all of no doubts, rock signifiers. At the end of the day, she's not a big feminist. She's very apolitical and whatever. In the past few years, she's been a host on The Voice. She's more of a reality TV competition show star than she is a pop star anymore. She got married to Blake Shelton, who's a huge country star. She's just like a mom who's married to Blake Shelton. She loves Blake Shelton. She's always talking about him being a manly man and she is so feminine and dainty and girly and it is interesting how through so much of her career post no doubt you've said this before people are just annoyed at her and disappointed maybe i don't know if that's unfair i'll go on record i'll fall on the sword on this i find looking at her now and i think maybe it's my own fault for not queuing properly into the signs of this that were always there. And there is a piece that was in BuzzFeed a few years ago, and I'll have to go back and quote the author because it's a really good piece. Essentially being like, this Gwen Stefani always existed, and if you didn't see it, that's your own fault, basically. Yeah. Because she always did speak to her traditional values a lot in her music. So it was maybe a dissonance between presentation and instinct towards risk aesthetically paired with what was ultimately something she brought up a lot, which was that she wanted a simple kind of life. Mm-hmm. I have this impulse, and that was part of the reason I wanted to do these episodes of... I I want to remind people she did do a lot of really interesting work in pop and was a very important mm-hmm. and influential figure for a long time from tragic kingdom through love angel music baby she was a really important player one of the people that i think is most easily able to track influence on yeah you can really see gwen in the pop that's come after her in an obvious way. I was thinking about it from Olivia Rodrigo's song. When I was listening to Vampire, I was like, there's no way No Doubt is not on Olivia Rodrigo's mood board, you know, when she's making her music. Yeah. The influence on Lady Gaga and Katy Perry is so obvious. And I bet you they'd all say so too. I'm sure that they would all be happy to say so. So it's this really interesting thing where I just feel like she's kind of sullied and messed up her legacy. I think both because of what you said, which was her inability to take responsibility for some of the cultural appropriative moves she made Mm -hmm. and then also this interesting sort of thing where she's just leaned into being a trad wife which is her prerogative and I don't want to criticize her for her personal life choices so it's weird but I just was flipping through her Instagram and maybe this is just a never meet your idols thing but she was the cool person's pop star yeah that's such an important role for someone to play and then we could talk about the way she's influenced Charlie being the cool person's pop star or Robin becoming the cool I mean there's a whole lane of the cool person's pop star that I think you can also say sort of emanates from what Gwen Stefani was doing in some ways. She's so influential and so cool to me in my child brain. And then I just look at this person now and I'm just like, I don't know, maybe growing up just makes you boring or (laughs) there's something about it that disappoints me. I hate to say that, but that's how I feel. Yeah, no, I think it's relatable. I mean, and that's why this is what the truth feels like was so disappointing because it's like, as we talked about with Love Angel Music Baby, she is such an incredible vocalist. She proved with that album that she can work in so many disparate genres and sounds and energies and styles and that she has, for as much of its problems, a vision Mm -hmm. for what her world can look like and the fashion and everything. There's an alternate universe in which she kept expanding the producers that she worked with. 
that she made more music and she really did more of that world building. Mm. But it felt like she put everything into one record Mm -hmm. and then sort of stepped back because she wasn't afraid of taking risks. And I don't know what happened to make her not want to do that anymore. Yeah. I feel like there could have been riskier, cooler music that she could have made post Lamb and Mm -hmm. she just didn't. Yeah. There's unfulfilled promise there. Yeah. But it was fun to get to go back preparing for this and just go back and look at a time where a pop star made a really risky sounding record and really went for it. And it just paid off in so many ways, including all of its awkwardness and atrocities. Mm -hmm. I think it stands as one of the most fascinating, risky pop moves that a mainstream pop star has really taken. And I think, again, the long tail of it continues to play out to this day. And I'm glad we had a chance to highlight some of that because I think that maybe that does get lost and she does deserve her props. I mean, these songs really live on in so many ways. And I think that there's a brilliance there, even if we only got to see a fleet moment of how it could fully function. I'm still very grateful that we got to and the songs on that album made me in some ways the pop fan that I am today. So Mm -hmm. Gwen, no matter how many times she's riding a fucking tractor on Instagram, (laughs) like I will still always have a deep place of love for her in my heart. All right, so let's talk about the Pop Pantheon. Where do you see Gwen Stefani's solo career fitting into the Pop Pantheon? Because we will have already placed no doubt in there. I know it's hard to separate these things out, but we're just talking about Gwen Stefani, the solo act. This is hard. Yes, it is. I think that she is tier three, and I think she's 3A. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like, as we said, she had one album that has had a deeply long tail. Yes. Very huge impact. Mm -hmm. Really felt like it dominated the charts the year it came out. Mm -hmm. Meaningful album to many people, us included. And I do feel like if Love Angel Music Baby was released today, it would be a little bit more critically respected. Agree. I think people would be a lot more tuned and included into the artistry of that album and more understanding of the world she was trying to build. Mm -hmm. So that is where I would place her. Yeah. I can't disagree. It's this weird thing where it's hard to think about like an artist who really only released one meaningful solo album in this tier. But she did release a second album that had hits, even if we don't particularly love it like it (laughs) and her celebrity is beyond tier three obviously she's more if we're thinking about celebrity pantheon she's tier two tier one type of artist and i think that really the thing that puts her in tier three for me is what you were talking about which is just the long tail influence of the album yeah i really do think it stands as one of the 10 most influential mainstream pop albums of the 21st century bar none so i think you're dead on I mean, look, she can still have a Vegas residency yeah. and do all this stuff <laughs> off of the one record. And obviously, no doubt. Yeah. It stands on its own. She can still launch massive tours and do all of this stuff basically off of the back of this one album. So I think tier three is exactly where our girl Gwenny belongs. This was so fun, Hazel. Is there an underrated Gwen Stefani song, one we haven't really talked about yet that you want to pull out? Maybe another lamb track that we didn't get a chance to focus on that we could send the show out on? I think that we should send the show out on the real thing. Thank you. Which we kind of touched on. No. But I feel like listening to that song again, revisiting this album, that song should have been bigger. I agree. I feel like it could have been a single. I agree. It's like Madonna. It's New Order. Mm -hmm. It really effectively hits maybe the 80s synth 
pop core of what this album maybe had going on and yeah it's always been one of my favorites and i'm glad that you picked it because <laughs> i love this song and it's really open-hearted gwen it's totally. a love song and it's beautiful and the production is immaculate 80s replica and just a great song all right so let's go out on the real thing hazel sills thank you so so much for being on the show thank you All right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Gwen Stefani, a certified tier three superstar. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you to the wonderful Hazel Sills for being such an incredible guest. Of course, to my right-hand man, Russ Martin, for everything he does to make this show happen every week. To PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. To Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-A-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. Merch is at Pop poppantheonpod.com patreon is at patreon.com slash poppantheon and gorgeous gorgeous on august 25th in la i hope to see you guys there until we meet again have a wonderful life bye bye